0: amen 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 hey one more time let's let our worship team know we love them and appreciate them yeah wow wow so good so good and guys how was the uh how was the concert on the meadow lawn was that pretty cool pretty cool pretty cool so So much of camp has been building up to tonight, building up to this moment. And I just want to say something, you guys, you are an absolutely exceptional group of junior high students. That that it has been such a personal gift just to be with you guys this week. And I have particularly been impressed With how when we've gotten into our study of God's word, as we've talked about some really big things, you guys have stayed locked in. You've stayed connected. I I can tell that you're processing what we're talking about. And I'm going to ask you tonight, more than any other night, to stay as locked in. Because what we are talking about tonight is the most important thing that we could talk about. In fact, tonight, some of you are going to make decisions that are going to alter not only the course of your life, but alter the course of history, alter the course of your communities, your families, your friendships, your future. And I believe that God has something so important for every single one of us to grasp. Night one, we talked about the truth of God. Night two, we talked about the truth of Scripture. Night three, we talked about the truth of Jesus' teachings and his power and his miracles. Last night, we talked about the truth of our sin. And tonight, we talk about the truth of the gospel. We talk about the truth of the good news. We talk about the truth of how Jesus chose to respond to all that we confessed last night. That tonight we're gonna see up close and personal how did God choose to respond to your sin and to my sin. And whether you've heard this A hundred times before, whether this is your very first time, my prayer is that your mind and your heart explode with wonder at how could this possibly be true? And not only is it true, but it comes with an invitation to you. And so tonight we're going to wrestle with the truth of the gospel For the first probably seven or eight years of Sarah and I's marriage, she would tell me all the time, she would tell me all the time, Eric, you have a serious snoring problem. Like you have a serious issue with snoring. Now, now raise your hand if you're my people out there and you snore. It's okay if you do. Be honest. Thank you, Jesse. I see that hand. See that hand. So yeah, now... After this week, you know who the snorers are. Now, here's the thing. I, I'm sure, I'm sure there's many of you who snore, and I'm sure it's kept some of your cabin awake, but my wife would literally tell me, she said, no, Eric, there's like, there's like snoring, and then there's like the sound that like a, a bear makes when he dies, and that's you. Like, that's what you sound like. And for years, for years and years and years, I put it off and I said, no, 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 I'm not going to, I'm fine. Every man snores like, no, I'm not going to do that. Until finally she was like, look, we, you need to go see somebody. So I went and did this thing called a sleep study where like you go to a doctor's office late at night, which already feels weird, right? Like you usually go in the morning or whatever. After. So I go to this doctor's office really late at night, like eight o'clock one night. And, and I walk into this what kind of is like almost like a hospital room. There's like a hallway with a bunch of different kind of rooms. And, and I walk inside of one of the rooms and, and there's a bed, there's a TV, and then there's this bathroom and the, and the door is wide open. And, and so I walk in and the technician, he has me sit down on the bed and, and we just begin talking. I remember very early on being like, man, like, I'm going to have to spend the entire night here. I'm going to sleep the entire night here as these people, like, watch me sleep, which is weird. And, and they're going to have me all hooked up to these things. Like, this is going to be weird. And, and, but I remember thinking, I got to go to the bathroom. Like I got to make sure I go to the bathroom before I, I do the sleep study. But the technician and I, we just started having this great conversation. And as we're talking, he starts kind of hooking me up with, like, all these kind of monitors and these machines. And I've got this, like, monitor around my head and on my chest and on my arms and even on my legs. And, and, and all of a sudden, like within a matter of moments, like I'm all just hooked up and, I, and I'm realizing I'm, I'm not gonna go to the bathroom. Like I just don't, I'm gonna have to go the entire night without going to the bathroom. And, and, and so I'm sitting there and, and, uh, and the TV's on and, and it's only maybe 8.30 or nine o'clock at this point. And, and uh, as we're having a conversation, he shares with me that he's a Christian and, and I share with him that I'm a pastor and we start talking about God, having this really great conversation. And then... Right as he's about to leave, he asked me this question. He says, Eric, let me ask you a question. Do you believe in ghosts? And you got to know this about me. I don't watch anything scary. I don't watch anything scary because it all freaks me out. Like, I watch Cocomelon, and that's it. Like, that's all, that's all I'm watching these days. Thank you. I see that hand. I see that hand. So I'm only watching Cocomelon. I'm only watching Cocomelon. So I don't watch the scary stuff. And so he asked me if I believe in ghosts. And I said, no, I don't. I said, actually, I, I think it's one of the ways that Satan messes with us spiritually to try to distract us from fixing our eyes on Jesus and to instead get us distracted on these other things. And he was like, oh, yeah, yeah, me I neither. Mean I don't, I don't you know, believe in ghosts either. And then he said this. He said, but the, uh, the last guy who was here, the last guy who was here sleeping in this bed, he said he, uh, he woke up in the middle of the night and he saw somebody tickling his feet. You guys, I, I'm, just you, I'm just telling you. I'm just telling you. I'm just telling you, you guys. When he said that, I felt like a, a third grader. I, felt, I began becoming so afraid. I had to pee I realized maybe weird Ticklefoot man is in the bathroom and I didn't even get a chance to see him. And, and I'm freaking out. And literally, right after he told me that story, he said, Well, good night, turned off the TV and closed the door. And I'm in a pitch black room by myself with a bathroom that I don't know who's in there. I literally could barely move. I remember texting my wife being like, If I die, I love you. Like, I didn't know what was going to happen. I remember wrestling with, I remember wrestling with, what do I do? What do I do with this fear? I don't believe in ghosts, but now I'm a little bit afraid. And you see, so many things happen in our lives that make us ask some really big questions. Maybe you've had something really traumatic happen in your life that has caused you to ask some really big questions. Maybe a friend did something to you that you never thought they would do and you're asking big questions. Maybe this entire week, the idea that God isn't just this like religious concept but that God is real, he is the holy creator of the universe and you and I are accountable to him that all of a sudden it's like shaking things up for you and you're asking yourself some really big questions. And maybe you're wrestling alongside our entire culture right now that is asking the question, what is truth? In John chapter 18, there's this amazing encounter that we'll, we'll talk about in more detail in a few minutes, but there's this amazing encounter between Jesus and this man named Pilate, Pontius Pilate, the governor of the day. And in John chapter 18, verse 37, Pilate says this, you are a king then said Pilate and Jesus answered you said that I am you say that I am a king in fact the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth everyone on the side of truth listens to me and then Pilate so famously responded almost with a chuckle in his voice with some sarcasm what is truth. This is the crisis of our culture right now. This is the crisis of our hearts. What is truth? What's true is that things are not okay in the world. What's true is that things are not okay within you and I. What's true is that our sin that we talked about last night any thought, word, or action that is disobedient to God, that it separates us from God, that it removes us from relationship with God, that it impacts our relationship with God, and that apart from some kind of intervention, we are separated eternally from God because of our sin. And here's the crazy thing about the story is that God created all of humanity to live in perfect relationship with himself and perfect relationship with each other. And we ruined it. We chose selfishness. We chose rebellion. We chose to reject God. And since the beginning of human history, God has been chasing after humanity, longing to reconnect with us, longing to reconcile us. Longing to be put in right relationship with us. And tonight what we're going to see is the lengths to which God went to rescue you. We're going to talk about the details of what he experienced to deal with the sin that separates you and I in our relationship with him. And then together we're gonna get to choose to respond to that amazing grace. You can write this down in your notes. Jesus, Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or he's Lord. I want you to write that down in your notes that Jesus is either a liar, he's a lunatic, or he's Lord. And tonight every single one of us get to respond tonight you have to make a decision. I have to make a decision. Is Jesus a liar? Is he a lunatic? Is he Lord? Let me catch you up to speed with what's been going on in Jesus' life. In, in John chapter 10, Jesus proclaims to be the good shepherd. He says that if you listen, that, that, that my sheep, they listen to my voice. Just another chapter later, Lazarus, one of his best friends, dies. And Jesus goes to the graveside and he proclaims this amazing truth. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. And then he weeps. Jesus wept because his best friend died. And then Jesus brings him back from the dead. You see, it's clear Jesus is capable of anything. Jesus is free. He is all powerful. In John chapter 13, he exercises that power and washes his disciples' feet, he feeds thousands. He heals lepers, people who were born with skin diseases. In John chapter 14, he says this audacious claim in a culture and a world where there were so many religions and so many different gods. He says, I am the way, I am the truth and I am the life. No one comes to the father except through me. And then towards the end of his earthly life, as he's with his disciples on his way to Jerusalem, the Gospel of Matthew records a very significant, sometimes overlooked moment in Jesus' ministry and something profound that he said in Matthew chapter 20, You can flip open your Bibles. It'll be up on the screen. Now, Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. On the way, he took the 12 aside and he said to them, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man, he's talking about himself, will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked, flogged, crucified. And on the third day, he will be raised to life. In other words, Jesus is prophesying. He's predicting the future. He's letting his followers know, here's what's coming. And he's saying, I'm telling you now so that when these things happen that are out of Jesus' hands, that they'll realize he actually is who he said he was. And so he promises to be mocked, to be flogged, to be crucified and on the third day to come back from the dead. In John chapter 19, verse seven, it says the Jewish leaders insisted we have a law. And according to that law, he talking about Jesus must die because he claimed to be the son of God. And so at this point in Jesus' ministry, he's been doing ministry for about three years and he's upset some really powerful people. The Jews are saying he is claiming to be God. We don't like that. We need to get rid of him. But that wasn't the only group that was frustrated at Jesus. Just a few verses later in verse 12, from then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders kept shouting, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. And so not only are the Jews frustrated with him, but what they're trying to make clear is Rome is frustrated with him as well. Because Jesus is not just a nice teacher. He's not just a healer. He's not just some guy that has some wisdom. No, he's claiming to be God and that upset the Roman authority and government because they believed Caesar was God and it upset the Jewish religious leaders because they could not fathom that he was their Messiah. They weren't willing to give up their power. And so here is Jesus between two superpowers of his day. And on Thursday night, Jesus gathers his closest friends together, and they share a meal together. He breaks some bread, and he says, guys, whenever you break bread, do this in remembrance of me. My body's been broken for you. They pass around a cup, and they drink, and he says, every time you drink this cup, remember that my blood is being poured out for the forgiveness of many. And his disciples are going, what are you talking about? We're just getting started. We're only three years into this. You're talking about transforming the world with this good news. It can't end right now. And so shortly after that meal, Jesus takes a few of his disciples into a garden, the garden of Gethsemane. And he he says, guys, I need you to stay here and I need you to pray with me. And Jesus goes a little farther off, and and, and he, he has this incredibly vulnerable and intimate conversation with his heavenly Father. And Jesus literally says, Father, take this cup from me, but not my will be done, your will be done the gospel of Luke, which was written by a physician and a doctor and a medical practitioner, the doctor Luke, he he tells us that Jesus was actually sweating drops of blood. He he was so overwhelmed by the reality of what was about to take place, not only the physical pain he was gonna experience, but but the weight of the sin of the world on his shoulders. He was becoming so overwhelmed by it that he he, he was overwhelmed. And drops of blood are dripping from his forehead. Shortly after that, Jesus is arrested. And he's taken before a group of people, and they begin to mock him. They spit on him, they slap him in the face. They put a crown on him and a robe on him, and they say, you said you're you're a prophet. Why don't you tell us who's hitting you? And they slap him in the face. The, the, The same Jesus who healed a woman who had been bleeding for 12 years and called her daughter to reinstate her value and worth is now getting slapped in the face. and he's being mocked, just like he said would happen. Well, Jesus doesn't get much sleep that night and he wakes up early Friday morning. And he's brought before Pontius Pilate who we just met a little bit ago. Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor of that day. And and Pontius Pilate is honestly trying to figure out why Jesus is even there. But Pontius Pilate can't help but hear the crowds behind him chanting, Crucify him! Crucify him! Crucify him! So Pilate says, okay. But before you crucify him, flog him. Just like Jesus said would happen. So they take Jesus into the middle of this courtyard and they strip him down completely naked and they tie his arms around a pole and his entire back is exposed and a crowd gathers and they're chanting and jeering. And two Roman guards on either side of him have whips in their hands with nails and glass and rocks at the end of them. And 39 times they go at his back and it takes two Roman guards to complete this task because it's so tiresome. It's so labor intensive that it would require two of them to do that. Here is the God of the universe incarnate Jesus Christ who has made everyone watching this including the Roman guards in his image. He he knit them together and now he is coming undone at their hands. Eventually they untie Jesus and he collapses to the ground. He's forced to carry a giant wooden beam all the way up this hill about a mile walk. One of the historical accounts of Jesus, one of the Gospels tells us that that he actually fell down, couldn't carry it any longer, and and a man from the crowd was commanded to carry it the rest of the way. Jesus, exhausted, tired, tired, gasping for breath, bleeding, collapses and, and they stretch out his arms as he's laying on the ground and they feel for the depression in his wrist and they drive a giant nail through his wrist into the wooden beam. They stretch out his other hand and do the same over here and then one last nail through both of his feet into the wooden beam and they hoist Jesus up. And he begins what. What the Gospel of Mark tells us lasted six hours, called crucifixion. And you see, you don't die from crucifixion because of blood loss; you die from suffocation. Because for six hours, Jesus is lifting himself up, causing excruciating pain in his feet just to take a breath. And then he exhales, causing excruciating pain in his wrists, And over and over again, he is just trying to catch a breath, experiencing excruciating pain. And I keep using that word excruciating because our our English word excruciating, we get it from the Latin word excruciare, which literally means out of crucifixion. So the very word excruciating has a picture attached to it, and it's what somebody endures on a cross. And so for six hours, Jesus is just trying to take a breath and yet he manages to say things like, Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. The Jesus who talked about grace and compassion and love is completely embodying it even in those excruciating hours. And then in John chapter 19, verse 30, Jesus says, it is finished. And then he dies. And what Jesus was saying is, sin's control over people is finished. Sin keeping my people away from me is finished. Death having the final word is finished finished. Sin not being dealt with in the sacrificial system, it's finished. And Jesus dies. Now maybe some of you are wondering, why though? Like, why did Jesus go through all of that? Why did he endure all of that? To help give us kind of a picture of this, I'm gonna invite my friend Jacob to come up here. Jacob, come on up here. Can you guys give Jacob a round of applause? All right. I want you guys to think of this luggage right here as our baggage. I want you to think about it as our sin. Now, for many of us, we think of our sin as that really bad decision that we made last weekend We think about that thing that we posted and then took off and thankfully nobody found out about it. We think about those things that are in the past and we've moved on past them. But when the Bible, which is true, which is God's truth, talks about sin, it actually says that you and I are slaves to sin, that you and I are handcuffed to our sin. Jacob, you ever been handcuffed at church camp? Uh, No. That's awesome. Okay, there's a first for everything. Here we go. Jacob, let me see. Let me see this hand. Okay, so the biblical picture of our sin is that it's attached to us, it's connected to us, it's inside of us, and there's nothing we can do on our own to get rid of it, and yet we try. You see, the first thing that you and I try to do is we try to how we how we manage with our sin is we just try to hide it from other people. So Jacob, here's what I want you to do. If this represents your sin, I want you to try to hide it from everyone over here. You gotta stay right here, right here. Try to hide it. <laughs> okay. All right. You guys now, we love we all love Jacob, all right? Jacob's a good kid, probably very talented in a million different things. Can anyone still see his sin? Raise your hand if you can still see your his sin. Okay. And this is what you and I try to do. We try to hide our sin from other. We try to put on a front. We try to make others think that we got it all together. But when we realize that's not gonna work, the other thing that you and I try to do is we try to run from our sin. We try to, we delete this account and start this new one. We leave this church, we go to a new one. We leave that friend group, we go to another one. We try to run away from our sin. Here's what I want you to do, Jacob. Just in this little area right here, I want you to try to run from your sin. Ready, set, go. Uh, Yeah, no, that's not gonna work. Now, dude, you got, dude, here's the thing. He's got his Nikes on, he's got his Adidas wear. Like, he's ready to run, right? Like, this kid's ready to run. But you saw what I saw. Wherever Jacob went, his sin went with him. And because God's word is so good and so true and he wants us to know the truth, the reality is this. That apart from Jesus' death on the cross, you and I are handcuffed to our sin. And there's nothing we could do, there's no amount of things we could do on our own to get rid of it. So some of you are wondering, why did Jesus die on a cross 2,000 years ago, and what impact does that have on my life today? Well, because Jesus was perfect, because he was sinless, and because he was actually God, he was the only one qualified to say, I'll take your sin, and I'll give you my perfection." I'll take your brokenness, your baggage, your shame, your guilt, all the things you've done, and I'll give you forgiveness. And so what happened 2,000 years ago on that cross is Jesus said, hold on, stay right here, bro. Jesus said, I want to take this for you. And it's going to cost me everything, my life. And he did this for the entire world, to all who would receive it so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be free. Can you guys give Jacob a round of applause? Give Jacob a round of applause. (laughs) You, You see, friends, don't miss this. God prioritized your life over his own that God held nothing back to win you back. That God in Christ did for you what no boyfriend or girlfriend or future career or salary or education or zip code could ever do for you. Jesus did for you what no one else could ever do for you. He died for you. And he took your sin. So that you could be free. But here's the thing, friends. That was only the third thing that Jesus said would happen. He said he'd be mocked. He said he'd be flogged. He said he'd be crucified. But I want to propose to you tonight that if the fourth thing, rising from the dead, didn't actually happen, then Jesus is just a liar or a lunatic. He's certainly not Lord. Lord. But if Jesus actually rose from the dead, like I'm talking physically came back to life, then he's not a liar then he's not a lunatic, then he is Lord. And that means the only proper response is for you and I to, with grateful hearts, say, thank you, King of the universe, for dying on the cross, rising from the dead, forgiving my sins. I give my entire life to you. Because at the end of the day, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, he didn't die for your sins. And if you think that's kind of crazy, that's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. Look at verses 14 and 17. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. Verse 17, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. So what I wanna do with the few minutes we have left tonight is I wanna share with you why I believe that Jesus actually rose from the dead because I want you to have a kind of confidence that Jesus said he'd be mocked, flogged, crucified, and that he would rise from the dead, and those things historically actually happened, and because they actually happened, you can trust every word out of Jesus' mouth, and when he promises you forgiveness and eternal life, you can take that to the bank, you can bet your life on it, and you can live for him alone. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the apostle Paul, who who spent the majority of his life hating Christians, trying to destroy the church, and then he met Jesus, started to build the church. He wrote a letter to a group of people, and he knew that they were a little skeptical. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul gives actually four reasons that you and I can be confident that Jesus rose from the dead. I want to just give you two tonight. You can write this down in your notes. Two reasons we believe Jesus rose from the dead. Two reasons we believe Jesus rose from the dead. The first one is this. Number one is this. The disciples were persecuted. The disciples were persecuted. Paul says, you know, when Jesus rose from the dead, he appeared to Peter and he appeared to the rest of the disciples. Why is that significant? Here's why. On Friday, when Jesus was crucified, how many disciples, how many of his closest friends were there ready to be crucified with him? How many? Zero. You see, they loved Jesus. They appreciated his teachings. They really, really liked him, and he had changed their lives. But when it came to giving up their own alongside Jesus, they said, peace, this is where I get off the bus. I'm out. But then on Sunday, when Jesus rose from the dead, these guys saw it with their own eyes, Paul tells us. And in the historical accounts of Jesus, they tell us that these disciples saw Jesus rise from the dead. And what's crazy about it is these disciples, they go on to literally lose their lives for Jesus. One of them is crucified upside down. 10 of them are murdered One of them is boiled in oil and sent to a far-off island. They were separated from their families. They experienced such incredible persecution. And it wasn't because they said, Jesus loves you. It wasn't because they said Jesus is nice and has some really cool things to say. It wasn't even because they were telling people Jesus performed miracles. The reason they died is because they couldn't stop and they wouldn't stop telling the world Jesus Christ died for your sins and he rose from the dead. Therefore, he is the Lord of the universe. And it cost them their life. Let me just ask you this question because you're smart students. How? How do you explain a group of people on Friday saying, we're not willing to die with you, Jesus? That same group of people on Sunday saying, not only will we give up our lives for you, but then they actually do. The only reasonable explanation for this transformation in these people's hearts and lives is that they actually saw Jesus come back. Second reason, second reason is James, the brother of Jesus. And again, there's four in 1 Corinthians 15. I'm just giving you two of them. Second reason, maybe the most compelling, is James, the brother of Jesus. Now, you need to know in the Gospels, when we see James... That before Jesus rises from the dead, in John chapter 7, verse 5, James is doubting who Jesus, his very own brother, is saying he is. In Mark chapter 3, he thinks his brother is crazy. His family is constantly trying to convince Jesus. They're like, you are stirring up so much trouble. You're sounding crazy. Like, just come home. Just come home. And that's how James felt. But then in the book of Acts, after Jesus has risen from the dead, we see James praying with the disciples. And then James, this brother of Jesus, he actually writes a letter in the New Testament called the book of James. And he begins his letter this way. He says, James, a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the same guy who before the resurrection said, Jesus, I doubt you. I think you're crazy. You need to come home. But then he saw something. And it wasn't just a miracle of feeding the 5,000. It wasn't just healing a leper. It wasn't a great, compelling, emotional teaching. James saw his brother come back from the dead. James Became a leader in the church in Jerusalem. And during a political transition of power, he was thrown off a building. And when he hit the ground, a mob swarmed around him and beat him until he died. They did not kill James because he was the brother of Jesus. They did not kill James because he loved his brother. They killed James because James couldn't stop and he wouldn't stop telling the entire Roman Empire, every single Jewish person he met and the entire world, my brother is my Lord. My brother is God and he died on a cross and he rose from the dead. How do you possibly explain it? You guys, what would it take for you? Raise your hand if you have a sibling. Raise your hand if you have a sibling. Okay, like many of you, what would it take for you to convince them that you are God? Like, what would you have to do? You couldn't. But check this. But check this, you guys. Check this, you guys. While James had a hard time becoming convinced by the things his brother Jesus said, it was the resurrection of his brother watching his brother jesus come back from the dead that changed everything and then james realized oh jesus really is the messiah he really is the christ he really is my savior and i am now a servant of the lord jesus christ in john chapter 3:16 it says for god so Loved the world. doesn't say he hated the world. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Ephesians 2, 4-5 to says, but because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions, even when we were running away from God. It wasn't like you and I were impressing God and he said, okay, fine, I'll die for them. It was when you and I were running away from God, when we were enemies of God that he chose to die on a cross. It is by grace you have been saved. And then finally, in Romans chapter 10 verse 9, Paul says, if you declare Bear with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Some of you some of you are wondering: okay, do, to, to be saved, do I need to do I need to go to youth group more? Do I need to read my Bible more? Do I need to memorize this? Do I need to do this? To be saved, you need to confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus Christ died on the cross for you, that he rose from the dead for you, that he is your Lord and savior, that you cannot forgive yourself, only he can. And at that moment, in that moment of proclamation of you confessing and you receiving his forgiveness and love and believing what he did for you, you are saved. And so you read your Bible and you go to youth group and you memorize scripture and, and you, you, you love people and serve people and you share Jesus with people not to try to earn his forgiveness, but because you already have it, it's the only thing that makes sense to do. And, and there's some of you who, after last night, you're just going, okay, I'm, I'm beginning to understand that, that Jesus has forgiven me, that he's thrown my sin as far as the east is from the west, but I can't seem to forget it. But I can't forgive myself for what I did. Let me give you a gospel way to respond to that, because every one of us goes through it. Every one of us who receives Christ, at some point, Satan throws back in our face all the things we've done, the sins that we've committed And many of us struggle with forgiving ourselves. Here is a gospel response. Every time Satan reminds you of a sin that you have done, you remind Satan that Jesus already paid for it. And so when when all of a sudden you start thinking about all the things you've done, and you wanna go back to your old strategies, or, or you, you begin to entertain the idea that Jesus could never actually forgive you, or maybe he has, but you could never forgive yourself, you remember and you remind yourself that Jesus has already forgiven it, and when you continue to remind yourself of that over and over again, you'll more and more become so overwhelmed with his grace and love That you'll recognize you could never do enough to earn it. It's always been a gift. I want to close with this story. There was, we had this night of uh, one of our youth group nights, and this, uh, one of my friends, Tim, was sharing his story. I mean, Tim had had a wild, crazy life, he had come out of some really, really crazy stuff. And so he gets up in front of our youth group to share. And, and right before he did, he said, hey, one of my buddies named Ryan is going to come tonight and, and watch my talk. And he doesn't know Jesus, but I invited him. So I said, okay, great. Had no idea what Ryan looked like. And Tim gets up and he shares his story. And, and afterwards, I got up and gave an invitation very similar to this, inviting students to surrender their lives to Jesus. And and I've got kind of bad eyes, but, but I kind of could look in the back and all of a sudden I saw this like six foot four, like 400 pound dude. And he raised his hand and then he starts like walking front and center. And I'm like, he's going to eat me. Like it's just, it's, I'm done. I don't know this guy. Turns out it's Ryan who had a very similar life story as Tim and just wanted Jesus' forgiveness. And A few weeks later, he reached out to us, Ryan reached out to us and said, can you come to my house and just explain this whole Jesus thing to me? We drove to his house, we sat around his table and for a couple hours, we just talked about Christ. We talked about his love and his forgiveness, his justice. We talked about how our sin keeps us separated from him but that he and he alone Has bridged the gap through his death and his resurrection, and that we can all have forgiveness, and that we can all spend eternity with him if we'll receive him and make him the Lord of our lives. Ryan starts crying like a baby at this table, and he says, I want that. And he prays and he receives Christ. And then he says, What do I do now? I said, Well, you got to start reading the Bible. you got to get to know this God who did this for you. And he said, awesome, I have a Bible right here, and he showed it to me, and, and it was a Bible that a Jehovah's Witness had given him. And he said, I'm going to confiscate that. That's not a Bible. So I took it and I put it over here. And I said, I'm going to give you this Bible, and I gave him a Bible. And for two weeks, Ryan was telling everybody at his workplace about Jesus. He was telling his neighbors about Jesus. He was having people over to his house to watch church. It was during the pandemic. And then one Friday morning, I got a phone call from his wife and she said, Ryan's dead. She said he had a heart attack and he collapsed and he's gone. And Tim and I drove out there to just pray with them and to just be there with them and then a few weeks later to be a part of their, part of his funeral, his memorial service. And I just remember thinking, man, what if Ryan hadn't made that decision? See, none of us know how much longer we have. Tomorrow's not promised to any of us. But what we do have is this moment right now where we can make a decision, you can make a decision, is Jesus a liar, is he a lunatic, or is he Lord? I don't want this to be a highly emotional decision, though it is absolutely an emotional experience when we think about what Jesus has done for us, but I want you to really think about this. Because to make Jesus the Lord of your life does not mean that you say a prayer at camp and then you go home and everything is the same. It doesn't mean that you say a prayer at camp and then you just continue doing anything you want to do and now you know you're going to spend all of eternity with Jesus. It doesn't work like that. That if Jesus truly becomes the Lord of your life, that means you hand over everything to him. And the freedom in that is that you get all of his forgiveness. And many who receive Christ describe like feeling like a weight off their shoulders Because they feel forgiven and loved and welcomed in. But make no mistake about it, Jesus is also expecting that he becomes the Lord of your life, the master of your life, the boss of your life. And I can tell you from personal experience, he's the best boss, he's the best leader, he's the best savior, he's the best Lord. Because he's the only Savior. He's the only Lord. And he's good. But now the question is to you. The whole narrative of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation is this. God chooses you. Don't doubt that for a second. Genesis to Revelation, God chooses you. The question of Scripture is will you choose God in return? I want to invite all of you to close your eyes right now. And I want you to think for a minute about where you're at with God right now. I want you to ask the question, is is Jesus your Lord and Savior? Have you received his forgiveness? Maybe tonight, for the very first time, you realized what Jesus has done for you, you, you realize that it was personal. You realize that because He's perfect, He's eternal, He created the world, He knows you completely, He knows all of your sin, and He went all the way to show you how much He loves you by dying on the cross and rising from the dead for you. And maybe you came up to camp this week not having a relationship with Christ but because of our time together and the conversations you've had with your leaders and your friends and the verses you've been reading and and you just sense that God is speaking to you, that tonight you wanna choose the God who chose you, that you wanna receive the forgiveness that Jesus Christ paid for by dying on the cross and rising from the dead. And you believe tonight for the first time that Jesus is who he said he was, and you want to begin a relationship with him, a lifelong relationship with him that that continues on into eternity. If that's you tonight with every eye closed, if tonight you want to begin a relationship with Jesus, I want you to raise your hand in the air right now as a way of saying, Jesus, I'm surrendering my life to you. With your hands in the air right now, I want to pray for you. Heavenly Father, I thank you for each one of these students. I thank you for this decision they're making to surrender their life to you. To say yes to you. That the goodness of your gospel has captivated their hearts. And Jesus, I pray they would know that they are forgiven. That they're saved. And that they've been given eternal life that begins now on into eternity because you are their Lord. There's another group out here with your eyes closed still. There's another group who you, you at one point were following Jesus, but maybe this last few years, maybe these last few months, you have not been following Jesus. There's been stuff going on. You know that God's been calling you to turn away, to repent, to to turn away from that sin and yet you've continued to go down that road and, and, and you were coming up here to Hume for a good time but you realized, oh no, God wanted to spend some time with you. That God wanted to get with you face to face to remind you of who he designed you to be. And so if tonight, If you you want to come home, if you want to repent, if you want to recommit, if you want to say, Jesus, I want to make you the Lord of my life again. I want to make that declaration. I want you to raise your hand right now if that's you. God, I pray for my friends who are making decisions, who are making commitments, that maybe their life, life hasn't looked like what you want it to look like. But I thank you, Jesus, that you're never done with us, that you're not holding grudges, you're handing out grace. And that when we slip up and fall back, you pick us up, dust us off, and send us out as your ambassadors. God, I pray that these hands raised would be making decisions and commitments tonight to make you the Lord of their lives again. I want to do something real quick, every eye open. Something really powerful happened in this space tonight. There were many of you who raised your hand for the first time, or you raised your hand saying, Jesus, I want to return to you. And scripture says that all of heaven is celebrating over these kinds of commitments, over, over these kinds of moments, that all of heaven is celebrating, and we want to celebrate with you. And one of the best things about following Jesus is that we don't have to do it alone. In fact, you were not meant to do it alone, but that God has given you each other. And so what I want to do is on the count of three, if you raised your hand, I want to ask you to boldly stand up at the count of three as a way of proclaiming in front of your friends, your youth pastors, your leaders, that Jesus, that you are either making him the Lord of your life for the first time, or that you've decided to repent and return home. And so on the count of three, I want you to stand up so we can celebrate with heaven what Jesus has done in this room. The greatest miracle in the history of the world that continues to happen is dead people becoming alive, lost people. That's us apart from Christ becoming found. This is the greatest miracle. So on the count of three, if you made that decision, if you made that commitment, I want you to stand up so we can celebrate what God is doing. One, two, three. And now, all of you that are standing, all of you that are standing, I have two questions for you and I need you to respond out loud. Question number one is this Is Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior? And do you believe that He died for your sins and that He rose from the grave? Yes. Question number two Are you committed to following Jesus for the rest of your life wherever He leads you? Yes. Then welcome to the family or welcome back to the family. Now, I want to invite all of you to stand up right now. I want to invite all of you to stand up as we continue to worship. If tonight you made a commitment, you you raised your hand, that you're declaring that Jesus is the Lord of your life for the first time or you're coming home, then we want to invite you to stay back tonight. You're... Your counselors, your youth pastors, your leaders, they want to talk about that big commitment and decision that you're making. They want to pray for you and encourage you and, and maybe hear a little bit of what's going on and why you raised your hand, why you stood up. And so if tonight, if, if that was you or you just want to stay back, to do some business with God, you want to continue to pray, you, you, want to, you have some questions, some, some things, you just sense that the Holy Spirit is moving right now in your heart and it would just be wrong for you to leave, you've got to stay here and, and deal with this, then we want to invite you to just go ahead and take, in a minute, to go ahead and just take a seat and just stay here and, and once everyone else clears out, your counselors and youth pastors and leaders are going to come pray for you and just encourage you. If, if tonight's just been a great night, but you're ready to kind of go on to the next thing, I want to encourage you to leave again in a minute. Uh, going to Go ahead and just leave in what's called a discipline of silence. This means not talking to anyone else around you, but go ahead and, and leaving out of respect for, for what God's doing in this place right now and in the hearts and lives of your friends here. And so I'm going to pray for us, and then when I say amen... If tonight's just been great and you're ready to kind of go on, that's totally awesome. Go ahead and just exit out the doors in a discipline of silence, not talking to anyone. But if you made a commitment tonight, I want to invite you to just have a seat and to allow your youth pastors and leaders to come alongside you and to pray for you to encourage you and give you a space to ask questions. So Heavenly Father, we thank you for the great privilege and honor that it is to see Hearts and lives changed by the gospel and the gospel alone. I thank you that the power of your gospel is still taking dead people and making them alive, lost people, making them found. And Holy Spirit, whatever you're up to in this space right now in the hearts and lives of those who made a commitment and decision, God, I pray that you would solidify it in these moments and that their lives, their communities, history would be changed, that would echo into eternity because of what happened in this place tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.